Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. I've never had the opportunity to sit down and talk to a candidate for President of the United States. It's a real honor, no matter what your politics are. So this is my lucky day. On May 23, 2020, Joe Jorgensen became the official Libertarian presidential candidate and the only female on the presidential ballot in 2020. It wasn't long before her supporters repurposed the hashtag, I'm with her. And by the way, she is the first woman to be on the ballot in all 50 states, twice because she did this as a vice presidential nominee back in 1996. The hope within Joe's campaign right now is that she is able to debate President Trump and Joe Biden on a national stage so that anyone who hears her can understand what she stands for, what being a libertarian really means. So we settled in to find out exactly that and so much more. Joe, welcome to the story behind her success. Oh, so glad to be here. Thanks. First of all, tell us, what does it mean to be a libertarian? Well, it means we're on your side and not the side of politicians, bureaucrats, and lobbyists. Many of America's cities are burning. There's unrest, there's fear, there's anxiety, emotions are high. How do you see it? And what can we do to heal a country that feels so divided today? Gosh, that's a really big question. First of all, as a scientist, I tend to look at the cause. How did we get here? And I would say that government is really how we got here, that American citizens, we treat each other just fine every day. However, when we get the government involved, who basically takes our money, spends it on tanks, hands it to uh, local police departments, it gives us an us versus them mentality. And what's really sad is, I remember when I was smaller, it was the local beat cop who knew your name and how are you doing and part of the community. But now we've got the federal government handing out tanks and tear gas and uh, along with free training and additional money to buy more stuff. So now we feel like enemy combatants in our own country. And it's really sad. Do you have an opinion about the organization Black Lives Matter? I believe we share the same frustration. I believe we both see that the problem is that we shouldn't have no-knock raid uh, laws. We need to get rid of qualified immunity, that we shouldn't have the racist war on drugs. And we both agree that there's been systemic racism in the federal government. Unfortunately, they want to get rid of the problem by making government bigger. However, libertarians say the way we got this problem is from big government. It was because government could, for instance, um, have, you know, give us Jim Crow laws. And I like to point out that with Rosa Parks, we all know the heroic story of Rosa Parks, who refused to sit in the back of the bus. What people don't know is that that was a government-run, government-owned bus. And about 60% of the bus ridership were blacks. So imagine somebody like Uber doing that, discriminating against the best 60% of their customers. They'd go out of business in no time as well they should. It's only the federal government who's untouchable, who's unaccountable, who can get away with discriminating like that. And so it's really sad for me to see the Black Lives Matter movement, who basically believes in Marxism, go to the very people who's been causing these problems. You've also been very vocal about the Trump administration's handling of the COVID-19 crisis. Mm -hmm. What went wrong, in your opinion, and what would you have done if you were sitting in the Oval Office? 
Well, the very first thing that went wrong was President Trump did not get rid of the FDA obstacles. There were dozens of different types of testing kits that Americans could have been using over the month so that we could have gotten ahead of testing. And in fact, if we look at Singapore and just Southeast Asia in general, many of them got in front of the virus by having widespread testing so that people knew you know, who could stay home and who could go out and work. But what we did instead is we, we basically said, let's just assume everybody has the virus and we all stay home. And so we lose tens of millions of jobs, and now we're really in a bad position. So if we had done early testing, that would have helped. And by the way, we still have a problem with testing. There are still testing kits that aren't allowed to be sold in America. And there are some states where you have to have doctor's orders just to get tested. That's absurd. Everybody should be able to get tested so that they know what precautions they need to take. And last, let me mention, people think that, well, if the government doesn't do it, that it won't get done, that somehow we're all teenagers who don't know any better. Well, many Americans have said that, yes, they think this is serious and they need to stay home. We only need to look to Walmart, who, for instance, enacted a mask policy in which if you want to shop at their store, you wear a mask. So we don't need the federal government telling us what to do in order to do the right thing. And if we took that out of the hands of the government, you know, for instance, if you want to wear a mask, great, you can shop at Walmart. If you don't want to wear a mask, then you can shop somewhere else. And let us each get our own decision and we can vote with our feet instead of having a winner takes all from the federal government. Let's talk a little bit about health care because I know you're very passionate about this. What is your stand on this issue? Well, it infuriates me to hear politicians say that we got into this position because of the free market, and that's why we need a single-payer system. I'd like to point out that we haven't had a free market in healthcare in close to a century, and that's the problem. If we would move to a free market, then a lot of our problems would go away. So first of all, when, when they say, I want Medicare for all, what I think is, VA hospital for all. And I don't think anybody in this country wants the VA hospital. It's a top-down monopoly that works very poorly. And in fact, if you look at where we have more of a free market, such as Singapore or the state of Indiana, what we see is we see prices go down and quality go up. And in fact, the only two free market systems that we have in our country, at least somewhat free market, we don't have any truly free market, but somewhat free market, would be cosmetic surgery and LASIK surgery. And in both of those, we've seen prices go down dramatically and quality go up because they're competing for us. And that's what we need, is we need to have the healthcare system compete for our business, just like car manufacturers do, or computers, or even grocery stores. You have also said that you would decriminalize drugs. Talk about that. When was the last time you heard of a liquor store owner going up and down the halls of a high school trying to push gin onto students? Or when's the last time you heard of a vodka addict trying to break into houses in order to support a vodka habit? Or when's the last time you heard of two liquor store owners having a shootout trying to get the best corner? Those are all prohibition problems. What we have now is not a drug problem. What we have is a prohibition problem. It didn't work in the 1920s for alcohol, and it's certainly not working right now. Can we have liberty, Joe, without law and order? Well, of course we need law and order. And as a libertarian, I believe that the government's function is 
police, courts, and military. Absolutely, we need the police. Absolutely, we need the courts for disputes. And absolutely, we need the military to support us. What we don't need is, for instance, the Department of Education, which tries to have a one-size-fits-all for education. The educational needs in, let's say, rural Appalachia, much different than downtown New York City or out in California. We should let parents, teachers, and students make their own decisions. I'd like to make an additional point here, which is people have asked me, why are we so polarized? And my response is, I think it's because everything goes to the government. You have to vote for everything. For instance, let's say that you don't want to send your kid to a school with prayer and your neighbor does. What you have to do is you have to fight it out. You've got to each support your candidate, put money in towards their campaigns, put yard signs out, and then you got to go vote and get all your friends to vote for you for your side. And then come election day, one of you is going to win and one of you is going to lose, and there's going to be one size fits all where you both get the same regardless of what you want. But if we could just keep our resources, keep our money in our hands, and let us decide what we want. And again, vote with our feet, vote with our dollars to where we would send our kid. So think of how nice that would be that we wouldn't be battling with our neighbor. We could send our kid to a school with prayer. Our neighbor could send his kid to a school without prayer and expand that because everything we do right now is a fight through government, whether it's education, health care, retirement, it all goes through government. So when you talk about law and order and can we keep law and order, I suggest it's more difficult to keep order and to maintain civility when we're all fighting with each other because we all have to somehow agree on one way of doing things. Our troops, what is your vision for the United States military under your leadership? I would like to turn America into one giant Switzerland, armed and neutral. We need to bring our troops home. First of all, we're in almost 150 different countries around the world. And also, we spend more on military than the next seven countries combined. So we could cut our military and still be number one in the world. And it'd be bad enough if it were just the money. And I'd like to point out, you know, we're sending military dollars to France and Germany. And we keep hearing how great France is because guess what? They get five-week vacations. Well, you know what? Maybe we'd get five-week vacations, too, if we weren't paying for their military, (laughs) maybe if they paid for their own. But it would be bad enough if it were just the dollars. But it's worse than that. It's making us less safe. And we just have to turn to 9-11 to see that. So what I say is we've got some irony here in that the job of the military is to keep us more safe. And what it's doing right now is making us less safe. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. It's really about forging a relationship and having a trusting relationship because your technology is very personal to you. It used to be in the old days that things were private. When you're online, nothing is private anymore. And we want to make sure that that information is kept confidential and with somebody that you trust and you feel comfortable with. You can trust Tech Help Boston to keep your computer and systems running right. Call 781-484-1265 or visit techhelpboston.com. That's techhelpboston.com. 
It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Shark Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. J.C. Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. You spent the summer crisscrossing our country on a giant tour bus talking yep. to the American people. What did they say to you and what did you learn from that? Well, a lot of them are saying, you know what? The old system just isn't working, that we need to get real change that the people in Washington are just so out of touch. And I couldn't agree more. In fact, our government was designed so that, you know, the old citizen statesman that you may have learned in school, that people go to Washington for a couple months, pass a few laws, being Congress people, and then go home and live under those laws for the rest of the year. But what we have now are professional politicians. And for instance, I don't think Joe Biden has ever had to live under law that he's passed in the last 47 years. What we have is a ruling elite, just like Animal Farm, where some of us are more equal than others. Many people say that a vote for a third party candidate is a wasted vote. What do you say, Joe? I say it depends on what you want. If you like what you have, high taxes. If you like being told you have to stay home, that you're under house arrest until your governor decides that you can leave your home, that you're not allowed to get testing kits, you're not allowed to get the medications you want. If you like that system, sure, go ahead and uh, vote for Trump or Biden. But if that's not what you want, then that's a wasted vote. I say vote for what you do want, and I'm offering a completely different scenario out there. Our childhood, our upbringing is what shapes us. So can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what was the message in your house? Well, I grew up north of Chicago in a very small town that only had one stoplight. So it was great, you know, having kind of the Norman Rockwell upbringing. So I got to learn all of the American values. And I would like to point out that Three of my four grandparents are immigrants, and so they would tell me about the old country and how great America is, that we have the freedom here to, you know, work whatever job we want and spend our money how we want to. And I remember my grandmother telling me how in the old country it was just terrible because it didn't matter how much you worked, it didn't matter how many extra jobs you worked, the government just took all the money, the extra money away so that everybody had the same. And when I tell that story, people think maybe I'm talking about the Soviet Union or an Eastern Bloc country, but that's actually Denmark. And unfortunately, the United States is headed in that direction. In fact, I'd like to point out one of my grandfathers is from Sweden, and Sweden never locked down during the uh, coronavirus. They got to go shopping. They went to schools. They went out to restaurants. So it's rather ironic that my grandfather's family comes to America for freedom, and now here we're less free than Sweden when it comes to uh, being able to leave our homes. Joe, you talked a little bit about your upbringing. Where did you get your work ethic from? Well, I got it from my parents. My dad's parents were immigrants from Denmark, had worked on a farm, and they really knew life without plenty. And then uh, my mom was a hard worker as well. So I was basically raised that I needed to get done what I should get done. When you were growing up, did you have a role model? Someone that you admired in history or a teacher who is especially good to you? Anything like that? Actually, no. It's interesting because when I was growing up, I really didn't have a role model either. 
It's one of the reasons why I created this program so that I could inspire others and they can inspire me. Well, I'm so glad you said that because I thought I just got the answer wrong when I said (laughs) I didn't have one. So I'm glad to know I'm not alone. What are the skills you think any president should have? Any president should have a really big eraser to erase all the laws that we have. What I've been saying in my speech is that my veto pen is going to need a lot of ink. I guess the biggest thing is to be able to stand up to Congress. The the myth of Ronald Reagan is that he made government small. Actually, every year for eight years, year after year, he made government bigger by more and more spending. Those closest to him said, well, what do you expect? Congress never gave him a balanced budget. They never spent less. Well, what I would expect Reagan to do, which is what I would do, which is to say that budget's not good enough. Go back, sharpen your pencil, bring me a better one. I don't care if they bring me 10, uh, 10, 20 budgets. I'll just keep sending them back. Now, of course, they could override me, but it's going to be a lot of work to do that. So I think probably my biggest asset is being a teacher. I'll just treat the Congress people as maybe unruly students or problem students and try to get them in line. 1996, you were the vice presidential candidate and Harry Brown was the presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party. Was your rise in the Libertarian Party swift? Was it slow? Did you have some pitfalls? How has it been for you? It was pretty swift just because I rolled up my sleeves and just jumped in there. If I see a problem, I want to fix it. And I just saw lots of problems and I just jumped in there and just started doing. The Libertarian Party, of course, unlike some of the other major parties, we don't look at gender, race. We just look at the person, or at least we try to. And we try to look at work ethic and can they get the job done. And so. They just saw me as somebody else. What a lot of people don't know is that the first woman to ever get an electoral college vote was a libertarian. It was Tony Nathan in 1972. In 1972, libertarians didn't care that she was a woman. They thought she was the best VP candidate. And so we got the first electoral college vote. Give us a little peek into what you do with your time when you are not crisscrossing the country and trying to run for president or teaching your class at Clemson, which by the way, you're doing at the same time, which is an amazing (laughs) accomplishment. Do you have any pastimes that you like? Oh gosh, I am a gardener. I love to play hockey. I like to redo houses. I live in a house that's over a hundred years old. There's always something to do. Um, I actually enjoy tiling and all of that. So jack of all trades, master of nothing, that would definitely be me. What's your message for young girls when they see you running for president? Well, I would hope that little boys would think the same thing as little girls, which is, okay, there's somebody who really wants to make the country better, and that really sounds like a good idea to let people make their own decisions. So I would hope they would look past my gender and just look at the ideas. In fact, I've had some people ask me, so I guess it's time for a woman president? And my answer is not necessarily. I don't care who has the message. I want to see freedom in my lifetime. I want to see people being able to make their own decisions, people being able to leave house to go to work if they want, people being able to choose their profession and decide how to spend their money. I don't care who is elected to get us that message, just so it gets done. You are also a PhD and a professor at Clemson. Can you tell me and tell our audience a little bit about your job and what you teach? 
Oh, I love my job. First of all, when people hear psychology, they immediately think clinical psychology. And no, I don't treat schizophrenia. Um, I can't even say it, apparently, so I don't treat it. Um, I don't do marriage therapy or anything like that. My degree is in industrial organizational psychology, which deals with motivation, training, teamwork, and I also have an MBA. However, my favorite class to teach is introduction to psychology because I get to teach a little bit of everything. It's a lot of fun. Did you always know what you wanted to do with your life? Did you think about politics when you were growing up at all? Well, first of all, I would say I don't want to be in politics. I, viewed, I, I view voting libertarian as an act of self-defense. And I have had other people say, well, I guess you must have been like student body president or maybe run for student council or something like that. And I'm pretty horrified at that suggestion because, no, I was the opposite. Again, it just made no sense to me, especially after reading Animal Farm, that an elite few in our high school could make rules for the rest of us. It just seems so unfair. I never wanted to get into politics. I never wanted to be the ruling class. But now we've gotten to the point to where we have to do something. Somebody has to stand up and say they've got way too much power. You have two daughters. How did you change when you became a mother? I would like to say I became more patient. Let's say I had to show more patience. <laughs> um, but, you know, people say you don't really understand love until you have a child. And now I understand it. I never thought I could love anything as much as, as I love the little bundle there. So it, it certainly took love to a whole new level. I guess I had to be more organized. The scheduling around for a few people instead of just me, I became an adult, <laughs> became a grown-up couple questions we ask everybody who sits where you are. And thank you so much for being on the show today. When an obstacle is in your path, Joe Jorgensen, how do you get around it? I'm pretty good at finding different ways. If I can't push it, then I try to look on top of it. If that doesn't work, I try to look around it. If that doesn't help, I try to call somebody else to say, hey, you've done this before. How did you get through it? So I'm pretty determined, which I think it takes to run for president. What do you wish you knew? when you first got started on this journey toward the White House? This time around? This time around. Let's just also <laughs> let people know that you were the vice president on the ticket in 1996 with Harry Brown. Yes, I was one of the few women to have been on the ballot in all 50 states back then. And so last time it was Hillary Clinton, before her, Sarah Palin, before her, it was me. So that's, that's the order. And you mentioned on the ballot twice. We're not quite up to 50, but we're closing in. We just have a few more states. Uh, what I wish I knew is that it is possible for life to get even busier. <laughs> Best piece of advice you have ever received, Joe, whether that be personal or professional, can you pass it along to our listeners? Well, it was advice that I didn't take, which is that people don't care about you as much as they think you do, <laughs> that you don't have to worry quite as much how you dress or how you talk or, you know, trying to please others, that other people are really worried about themselves. And they're, they're just not as concerned about you as you might think they are. You have always said this race is not about gender, but there are many women and there are many girls out there listening to our show who need to see a woman rise in this role. What would a woman bring to the White House that a man might not? And there was a study that showed that women tend to be better managers because they tend to listen a little more. They can multitask a little better. So I would say maybe the caring touch and really getting stuff done. At the end of the day, Joe, what does success mean to you? Getting the job done. 
I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story and for being here in Boston on the story behind her success. Best of luck to you, Joe Jorgensen. Thank you. It was such an honor to be here. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?